Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, Everyone Needs Grace. All right, well, if the Apostle Paul was not called to be an apostle, he would have made a great lawyer. Here's why I say that, because the, his letter to the Romans is laid out in such a logical way. In his letter to the Romans, Paul assumes the role of a prosecuting attorney, a prosecuting attorney whose logic is so amazing, it just cannot be defeated. And so in his role as prosecuting attorney, <clears throat> what, the Paul, what Paul does is he makes a strong case for the depravity of all mankind, a strong case proving that all of us are under sin and all of us deserve God's judgment. That's the bad news of the gospel. And so if you're taking notes, here's your first point. In the first section of Romans, we see God as the judge. We see man as the defendant. And by the way, that includes you and me. And then we see Paul as the prosecutor. And so as Paul made his case against humanity in Romans chapter 1 and 2 and 3, it's as if man continued to interrupt. You know, objection. Imagine we're in a courtroom, right? God's the judge. Paul's the prosecutor. Man's the defense. And as Paul's making his case, man continues to say, objection, objection. But every single time man stands in defense of himself to say objection, God, the righteous judge, says this word. He says, overruled. And so in chapter 1, Paul made his case against the unrighteous. You remember that. In chapter 2, Paul makes his case against the self-righteous. And so whether you're unrighteous in chapter 1 or self-righteous in chapter 2, the truth is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in case you're saying, well, yeah, I sin every once in a while. It's not a big deal. No. No, here, here's the big deal. Every single one of us have committed crimes against heaven, and we deserve the just judgment of God. That is Paul, the prosecutor's argument in the first three chapters of this letter. But man keeps objecting, right? And so the defense for the Gentiles... As Paul's making his case in the, in the courtroom, the Gentiles would stand up and he, the, uh, they would say something like this. They would say, we object because we're not Jews, right? We don't have a hero named Moses who went up on Mount Sinai 1,500 years before Christ and received the, 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 the written law of God. We didn't even know Moses existed. Many of us didn't even know there was a written law. And so therefore, here's the objection of the, of the Gentiles. Therefore, how can we be judged by something we did not possess? Right? And then the Apostle Paul, and by the way, that sounds like a, a reasonable objection until Paul stands up and he says this. Check it out. To the Gentiles, Paul says, even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. Say, how do they do that? Here's how. 
They demonstrate that God's law is, help me out with the next four words, written in their hearts for their own conscience. Everybody has a conscience, saved or lost. Everybody's born with a conscience. For their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them that they are doing right. And so Paul said to the Gentiles, hey guys, even though you didn't have God's law written on paper, you had God's law written on your heart. Even though you didn't have God's law in code, you had it in conscience. Therefore, you are without excuse. And everybody in the courtroom looks up at the judge, the righteous judge, to say, to, to, to find out what is God going to say about the Gentiles' objection that, that they didn't have the written law, therefore they shouldn't be judged. What is the judge going to say? This word, overruled. Now, Paul the prosecutor is just getting started. He's done with the Gentiles. Chapter 2, he turns to the self-righteous Jews. And he makes his case against them, and he says, you also are guilty. Right? But the defense for the Jews, they stand up and they say, well, time out. We object. We object because we're not like the pagan Gentiles, these godless sinners. We're not like them. No, we are Jews. We have been circumcised. Therefore, God accepts us. Now, that sounds like a reasonable objection <laughs> until Paul the prosecutor stands up and says this to the Jews. He says, for you are not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents. By the way, Christians, you are not a true Christian just because you were born of Christian parents. God doesn't have grandkids, only kids. Because <laughs> I hear that when I talk to people sometimes. Oh, yeah, you know, they try to divert the gospel. My daddy was a preacher, or my grandfather you know, was a deacon, or whatever. No, 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 what about you? Right? But we're talking about the Jews. Okay, so, for you are not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents, or, here it is, because you have gone through the ceremony of what? Circumcision. No. A true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law, rather it is a, here's where it's at, right here, a change of heart produced by the Spirit. And so Paul is saying to the Jews in chapter 2, hey, what's the use of your outward ritual of circumcision when there's been no change of heart? And so, hey, your outward ritual is not going to do anything for you. Therefore, you are guilty. Everybody looks at the judge to find out what is the judge going to say to the Jews and their defense that we've been circumcised, therefore God accepts us. Well, God himself, the judge, says this word, overruled. God says, I agree with Paul, the prosecutor. The Gentiles have sinned and therefore are under my just judgment. The Jews have all sinned and are therefore under my just judgment. Okay, but the Jews, you know, they can be stubborn. And if you don't believe that, go back and read the Old Testament. I'm in Jeremiah, having my devotions very slowly, working my way through Jeremiah. It's amazing to me how God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to the Jewish nation to tell them to repent, stop worshiping idols, turn back to me. And you know what the Jews kept saying? La, 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 right? 
In fact, they got so mad at Jeremiah, they grabbed him and said, we're going to kill this prophet of God because he keeps preaching this doomsday message. But these other prophets are saying that there's going to be peace and prosperity. They're trying to kill Jeremiah. That's where I left off in my devotions today. And so, yes, the Jews and Gentiles can be stubborn, and so the Jews continue to object to Paul. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. That's where we are today. The Jews would object to Paul's reasoning and logic here, and they would say, many of them, what advantage then? You know, if Paul is right, we're all under sin, and we're all under God's condemnation. Okay, verse 1, what advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? The Jews are saying to Paul, Paul, if, if what you're saying is right, if our ancestry, our pedigree as Jews does not make us right with God, and if our circumcision does not make us right with God, what is the use of being Jewish? What's the advantage of being a Jew? How does Paul respond in verse 2? What advantage do the Jews have? Verse 2, much in every way. Chiefly because to them, the Jews, were committed the, help me out with this, the oracles of God. The oracles of God. And so Paul says to the Jews, you guys have great advantage being Jewish because God gave your ancestors his oracles. Okay, what in the world is an oracle? Well, defined by Blue Letter Bible, the, the word oracle in the original language means the words or utterances of who? God. It's called your Old Testament. That's what he's specifically referring to here because the New Testament had not yet been written. And so it's the utterances of God. What you need to know if you're new to the Bible is that initially God gave his word to only one race. The descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And what a gift that he gave the scriptures to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There was, there was so many advantages, right? We'll see this in chapter 9. There's so many advantages of being a Jew, but the greatest advantage of all is the exposure that you had to the scriptures while you were growing up. By the way, I, I did this first service. I'll do it again this service. How many of you guys had the privilege of growing up in a, a Christian home where mom and dad taught you the Bible? Can I just see your hand if that is you? You guys are so blessed by God. Your parents probably aren't the most perfect people in the world, but you ought to call them today and thank them for raising you in a home where you heard the name of Jesus often and where the Bible was put in the place that it should be. And so the Jews, great advantage being Jewish. Why? The exposure they had to the scriptures at an early age. Timothy would be a great example. Uh, Timothy grew up on the scriptures. His mother Eunice and his grandmother uh, Lois, they, they, they taught Timothy the oracles of God even when he was a little boy. And the Apostle Paul, by the way, attested to that truth by saying this to Timothy. Uh, we'll put up uh, 2 Timothy 3.15. He says to Timothy, from childhood, you have known the holy what? Scriptures. Priceless. You've heard me say it before. You may, you may have spent $49.99 for that study Bible, but it's, it's literally priceless. And so you, from childhood, have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise. Now you guys understand we need some wisdom in our age today, right? 
They're able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Okay, so Timothy's mom, Eunice, his grandma, Lois, um, even though his dad was Greek, those two ladies were devoted Jews. And they taught Timothy, even when he was a little boy, the scriptures, the Old Testament, which, by the way, promised that a Messiah would someday come and that Messiah would deliver his people. And so later on, when Timothy becomes a man, and uh, a young man, and then Paul comes along and meets Timothy, and Paul leads Timothy to Christ, Timothy already, when he received Jesus as his Messiah, he already had a great advantage. What was that? He grew up on the Bible. He already knew the scriptures. And so he went right into ministry, and we see Paul talking about Timothy all the time as a, uh, the young pastor that he was. So Timothy has this great advantage of growing up on the scriptures, the Old Testament, which pointed to Jesus. Now, some of you may be thinking, Pastor Mike, I thought only the New Testament was about Jesus. I didn't think the Old Testament was about Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, the main theme of the Old Testament is Jesus. Look at what Jesus said to the Jews in John 5, 39. He says, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these, the scriptures, are they which testify of who? Of me. Genesis through Malachi. What's it about? It's about Jesus. You say, I don't see the name Jesus in there. No, but there's promise after promise after promise. Prophecy after prophecy after prophecy that a Messiah is going to come. He's going to be born of a virgin. He's going to live a perfect life. He's going to be beaten and he's going to suffer and he's going to die. They're going to pierce his hands and his feet. Right? All those, so many prophecies, all in not the New Testament, in the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament, the main theme, is our Lord Jesus Christ. How sad when Jesus became a man and went to Israel that most of the Jews rejected Jesus as their Messiah even though they had the book that pointed to him, right? You see how there's no excuse? No excuse at all. And so here, here's a question that I'll, that I'll lead into verse 3. Did the fact, you guys can answer out loud, did the fact that many Jews rejected Jesus as their Messiah, did that somehow say that God was unfaithful to his promise to the Jews? You're right. Paul agrees with you. Look at verse 3. He says, For what if some, some Jews, did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? In other words, does that mean that God is unfaithful to his promise to the Jews? Verse 4, uh, certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, and every man a liar, as it is written, he now quotes uh, words from David in Psalm 51, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. And so the Jews' next objection was summed up by Paul in these words, and that is that, hey, God's unfaithful if not all of us are going to heaven. And Paul says, hey, even if every single Jewish person, and by the way, 
many Jews do believe in Jesus, thank God. Paul was a Jew. The whole first century church in Acts chapter 2 was initially Jewish. Jesus was a Jew, okay? But some still thought that because we're Jewish and we've been circumcised, God has to save all of us. And therefore, if God doesn't save all of us, then God must be unfaithful. And how does Paul answer that? He says, uh, no, even if every single Jew on the planet rejected Jesus as their Messiah, that's not bad on God. That's bad on them. They had the scriptures. The scriptures attested to Christ. And yet, even with that witness, they objected to Jesus. And so now, look at verses 5 through 8. Some Jews would continue to object, and they come up with this twisted reasoning, right? He says in verse 5, But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? How would you answer that question? Is, is God unjust because he punishes people? Yes or no? No. That's why Paul puts in parentheses, I speak as a man. He says, certainly not. But then how will God judge the world? Verse 7, for if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, some would say, well, why am I then judged as a sinner? And why not say, well, let us do evil that good may come, Paul says, as we, his team, Paul's team, are slanderously reported and some affirm that we say, he says to those who would slander him in his ministry at the end of verse 8, their condemnation is just. Verses 5 through 8, it's a difficult passage. Let me explain it the best way I know how. Some Jews would say this in their twisted logic. Not all Jews, but some Jews would say this. And by the way, some Gentiles would say this too. They would say, okay, Paul says we're all unrighteous. Well, if our unrighteousness displays God's righteousness then shouldn't we sin all the more? It's kind of, I'll, I'll illustrate it this way. It's kind of like a diamond <clears throat> against a black or dark backdrop or background. Okay, and so the reasoning of some twisted people would say this. All right, so my heart is the, the dark background and God and his glory is the diamond. The best way to accentuate the diamond, the glory of the diamond is to have that dark background. And so if that is true, then, hey, my sin glorifies God's holiness. My unrighteousness glorifies God's righteousness. My lies glorify God's truth. And so look how dark my heart is. The darkness of my heart makes God's glory all the brighter. So you know what I should do? I should sin as much as possible. Because it glorifies God. And then, some of them had the audacity to say to the Apostle Paul, isn't that the gospel of grace that you're preaching? They hated Paul, and they hated his gospel that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They saw it as a license to sin. And so isn't that Paul's gospel of grace? Hey, everybody, just keep sinning. Because the more you sin, the more God forgives. The more you sin, the more God shows grace. And look at the glory of his grace when we sin that way. That's what they're accusing Paul of. And Paul says, what? You crazy? That's not what Paul preached at all. Now follow this right here. 
okay? Saying that we should sin more because it shows the glory of God to all people is like saying this. We should all this afternoon go out and set as many fires as possible in poor St. Lucie because that'll show the skills and the glory of our firefighters. <laughs> what? Now, hopefully nobody's going to do that. Why? Because arson is a crime against humanity. And so sin, your sin, my sin, it's a crime against Heaven, it doesn't glorify God. Throw out the diamond illustration. It doesn't work. Let's see the next point. Let's see the truth. The truth is, God is not glorified by our sin. He's offended by it. We should avoid sin like the plague. There's your truth. Are you avoiding sin like the plague? Or are you still believing the lie of the devil that, hey, it brings pleasure, it brings satisfaction? So that's why I, on Fridays, throw back a few. I just want to relax. I just want to unwind. That's what it does. It helps me escape. The problem is when you get hooked. And then one is not enough, two is not enough. You've got to keep drinking. The next thing you know, years later, your wife's left you, your kid's left you, and you're laying in a gutter somewhere. Where's the devil's promise of prosperity now? And he laughs all the way. Do you see the destructive nature of sin? And by the way, if you're a young person, if you never even have one sip, you'll never have to worry about being in a gutter someday. Look at the destructive nature of sin. Let's wise up to the devil's lie that it's going to bring peace or somehow fulfill us or, or help us escape or bring pleasure. Listen, it may bring pleasure for a season, and then it bites like a snake. Look at the destructive nature of drugs. We were reminded just this week, tragically, that drugs, again, takes another life. It destroys in the end. Look at the destructive nature of man's ego. He climbs a corporate ladder. He doesn't care whose life he ruins, just as long as he's on top. Ego destroys. Alcohol destroys. Sin, uh, drugs destroy. Greed destroys. Illicit sex destroys. What's illicit sex? It's any sex outside of marriage. It'll destroy you. Oh, come on, Pastor Mike. Not again. I'm just having some fun. No, you're going to ruin that person's life and your own life. Right? Do you remember Hebrews 13? Where the marriage bed is undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge, it says. God's judging you. You need to split off. You need to stop doing that. You need to begin to honor the Lord. Why? Because sin outside of marriage destroys lives. It causes sexually transmitted diseases. It causes AIDS in many cases. It causes some women uh, who are confused to, to, to have an abortion. I read this week some 58 million abortions in our country since Roe v. Wade. You've heard preachers say it before. I'll say it again. If God does not judge America, then he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. And we think, no, like the false prophets in Jeremiah 
this day. There'll be peace. There's going to be prosperity. We can just keep sinning all we want, and, and, and we'll just keep getting blessed as a country. And I'm so reminded every time I go on a trip to a third world country and I see the utter poverty and the curse of poverty and the way people live in, listen, over 90% of our world, and we're over in America, hat, uh, fat, dumb, and happy, thinking that God's going to keep blessing us and we're going to keep prospering. In our sin, no, we're not. We're headed to the same place, ladies and gentlemen. The same exact place. Sin destroys. And so instead of coming up with excuses for our sin, like the twisted people in the first century that, man, the more I sin, the more God's glory is exemplified. No, what we should do is understand that all sin, from a lie to a murder, is a crime against heaven. And we need, with God's help, to avoid it like the plague. And so people who were slandering Paul and his ministry and saying that he was teaching a gospel of grace that encouraged people to sin, how did Paul respond to them at the end of verse 8? He says, man, your condemnation is just. It's not what I preach. And now we're coming close to the end of the bad news in Romans, getting ready for the good news. But Paul has to make one Last-ditch effort, as Paul the prosecutor, to make sure we all understand that all of us are under sin and all of us are under God's judgment. So look at verse 9. We'll read all the way down to verse 18. He says, What then are we, the Jews, better than they, the Gentiles? Not at all. For we, the Jews, have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. Everybody, can you say the word all? Okay, and that includes you and me. As it is written, and now he's quoting all these verses. He says, there is none righteous, no, not one. Verse 11, there's none who understand. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none, end of verse 12, who does good, no, not one. You see how Paul is passionately making his case here? He says in verse 13, their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace they have not known. Why does man do all these horrible things? Verse 18 tells us why. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And so what Paul is doing, because Paul was a teacher of the word of God. Paul didn't give pep talks with pop psychology. He got the, into the word of God. He was immersed in the word of God. And so what is he doing here in verses 9 through 18? He's quoting the word, quoting the word, quoting the word. And people today, if you go to church growth seminars, I advise you not to. They'll say, you can't teach the word. It'll bore people. They won't show up. Listen, at the expense of boring people, I'd rather preach three of God's words than 3,000 of my words because those three words will change your life and my 3,000 words won't do diddly squat for your life. We need the word. And my heart is burdened because I want to be a pastor of a church that hungers for God's word, for people who are in the word every single day of their lives. 
who are immersing themselves in it so that when they are challenged, like Paul's challenged here, what comes out of their mouth, like what came out of Paul's pen, is scripture after scripture after scripture. He shows from Psalm, he quotes from Psalm 14, Ecclesiastes 7, Psalm 5, Psalm 140, Psalm 10, Isaiah 59, Psalm 36. And as he's quoting the scriptures, he's showing, he's making his case. This is the case. We'll put it up on the screen. Sin affects our motives, verse 10. Our thoughts, verse 11. Our will, verses 11 through 12. Our tongue, verses 13 through 14, and our relationships. Okay, we'll just quickly hit all, all of these. First of all, sin affects our motives. Somebody says, come on, Paul. In verse 10, did you see it? None righteous, no, not one, nobody, come on. Why are you always so serious? Everybody does some good sometime in their life. Well, here's the problem. God says it, not Paul. He says it through Paul. And God's the one who has x-ray vision. He can see into our hearts. And so what, what God sees in our heart, listen, is why we do the good work. The motive for the good work. Like you know, if there's a little elderly lady, she's trying to cross an intersection, and a stranger runs up to help her across the intersection. Doesn't that look great on the outside? Yes, it looks great on the outside, but what if you're God and you can see in his heart to see why he's doing that? Maybe he's walking her to the other side so that he, she'll give him some money at the other side. Maybe that's his motive. It's just, maybe it's a selfish motive. Maybe he's walking her to the other side because his date is watch, watching. He wants to impress her. Oh, right? Look at me. Maybe he's walking her to the other side because he wants to rob her at gunpoint on the other side, right? God knows the heart, or, or maybe he, he really does want to help her. Okay, maybe he actually cares. Only God knows and that man knows the motive. My point is this. It's not enough to just do good works. We have to have pure, selfless motives behind the works. So when you and I as born-again Christians stand before the judgment seat of Christ and our works are judged and not our eternity is determined, that's already been taken care of by the blood of Jesus, but our rewards are at stake. And what happens is that sometimes, our, what will happen is our good works will go through the fire. The wood, hay, and stubble is going to be burnt up. Those are the good works we did with selfish, impure motives. The gold, silver, precious stones makes it through the fire. Those are good works we did for God's glory and the good of his people, period. So the question you have to ask yourself the next time you do something good this week is, why am I doing this? Am I doing it to be seen by others? So people can say, look how spiritual he is. Man, I want to be like him. Is that why? Wood, hay, stubble, burning at the judgment seat of Christ. Is the primary reason we tithe is because we want God to bless us with material things. That's the reason I'm doing this. Wood, hay, stubble, burnt to a crisp. The primary reason that we tithe is to honor God because he's worthy. Why do we do the good works that we do? God looks down into the heart with his x-ray vision. And what he sees is that he sees, un he sees selfish and ulterior type of motives, and he makes the proclamation in verse 10, 
all, I mean, he, he makes a, procl a proclamation that there are none righteous, no, not one. Sin affects our thoughts. In verse 11, he says, there is none who understands. Check this out. Before we met Christ, before Christ, B.C., in our B.C. days, you guys, does anybody, let me see your hand if you remember your B.C. days, okay? Here's what I know about you. You did not seek God. He sought you. In our B.C. days, listen, our sin so blinded us that there was no way we could ever come to the understanding that we are sinners in need of salvation. Because if you ask the average person today, go ahead and try it. Why are you going to heaven? Nine times out of ten, you hear this. I'm a pretty good person. Come on. I do good things. I do some bad things. But God's going to weigh it out. My good will outweigh my bad. And he'll say, come on in. They're lost. No clue about their need for salvation because they are on their way to hell. They have no clue of that. And so the only way that any of us ever seeks God is because God first seeks us. Jesus said to the Pharisees of his day, um, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. We need the Lord. We are in desperate need for the Lord. From birth all the way to death, we need him. And salvation is always and only an act of his grace. He, we love him because he first loved us. Right? And so it affects our motives. It affects our thoughts. It affects our will. I'm going to mess with some of you guys right now, okay? It says there in verse 11b, check it out, there is none who seeks God. They have all turned aside. And so someone says, I seek God. Really? Okay, let's all really be honest right now in our hearts, okay? Because I, I can't see your heart. It doesn't matter what I think anyway, but God sees right in your heart. You can't lie to God, okay? Here's the question I want to ask you. Are you truly seeking the God of the Bible, or are, you, or, or are you seeking what he can do for you? Which one? Why do you go to church? Why do you serve the Lord? Why do you give? I'm seeking God. Really? No, no. Are you seeking God or are you seeking his blessings? Somebody says, I, I want a nice place to live. I want a nice car. I want a good-looking spouse. I want to be healthy. I want my family to be healthy. I just want everything to be okay in my life, Pastor Mike. And so that's why I pray sometimes. That's why I go to church. That's why I throw a few bucks in the offering bucket because I want to be blessed by God. Okay, but, but here's my question for you. Will you deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus Christ? Will you completely surrender your will to the will of the Father and be a lifelong follower of Jesus Christ no matter who says what? Is, is that you? And you know, the answer most of the time is, I don't want to be a fanatic. I just want to be blessed. Okay? You're seeking the gift, not the giver. There's a difference between seeking the gift and the giver. And the way you can tell which one you're really seeking is you got to ask this tough question. Okay, if you're with me, can you say amen here? Okay, ask this tough question. And by the way, you'll never see this on TV. 
with all the prosperity preachers. Ask yourself this question, just with this question, okay? How would I respond if God took it all away? What if God stripped you of your health? What if God stripped you of your, of your, of your wealth and your health? And what if he took away your spouse? What if he took away your kids? You say, my God wouldn't do that. Have you ever read the book of Job? And listen, the way we know that Job primarily sought the giver and not the gift is because when his health was taken away, when his wealth was stripped away, when his kids were killed in the tornado, and when his wife looked at him and said, curse God and die, when, he, when Job is sitting on the ash heap, scraping his boils with broken pottery, what does he do? Does he shake his fist at God and say, I hate you? Is that what he does? No, this is what he says, and I quote. He says, the Lord gave, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Wow, isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? That's someone who's seeking the giver, not the gift. And by the way, at the end of the story, in case you were wondering, Job is blessed with twice as much as he had before. Okay, so he wins in the end because God is a gracious God. But my point is, he had to go through a time of testing. How will you respond when you go through that time of testing? Will you sh and I've known people shake their fist at God. Or will you say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Sin affects our motives. Sin affects our thoughts. Sin affects our will. Sin affects our tongue in verse 13. It says their throat is an open tombed tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. It says in verse 14, their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Okay? So if you're walking by an open tomb, right, you're going to get hit with a stench. And the smell that you're going to smell from that open tomb is a decaying body. And likewise, when you're at work around the break room table or your neighbors or wherever you are, maybe, hopefully not, but maybe in your own home, and you hear somebody and their mouth is full of cursing and vulgarity and profanity, then he, he, here's what, what's happening. You're hearing the sign, not of a decaying body, you're hearing the sign of a decaying heart, a dead heart. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. When you hear somebody dropping 20, 30, 40 F-bombs with no repentance at all, whether that person does it at home or at work or if some politician does it in a speech, here's what you know. That guy's heart is dead. He may talk about Christianity, but he doesn't know Christ. You say, well, how can... How can you say that, Pastor Mike? Jesus said it. He said, by their fruits you shall know them. Let's not be deceived. Sin affects our motives. Sin affects our thoughts. Sin affects our will. Sin affects our tongue. Sin affects our relationships in verse 15. He says, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. The way of peace they have not known. And so... You ask yourself the question, you know, why are the headlines filled with murder all the time and wars all the time and violence, right, and conflict? Why is that? Because sin 
has permeated the entire planet and it's affected our relationships. And so in verse 18, I said this before, why do people act this way? 18 tells us why. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Do you know what the greatest threat to our country is? The greatest threat to our country is not terrorism. It is not a weak national defense. It is not a liberal Supreme Court. The greatest threat to our country is not people that want to revise the Constitution. The greatest threat to our country is not that the person that we want to be president may not become president. That is, those are all big problems, okay? But that is not the greatest threat to our country. The greatest threat to our country is that more Americans than ever before have no fear of God. No fear of God. That's why there's 58 million abortions. That's why there's an $18 trillion national debt. Listen, America needs revival. Not to save America, but to save Americans. Right? The way you save a nation is one soul at a time. And so if individual Americans would turn from their sin and turn to Jesus Christ, right, as their Savior and Lord, then he'll cleanse them. Then the Holy Spirit will come inside of them. And then what happens is that he will give them a healthy fear of God. And when you have a healthy fear of God, all that other stuff takes care of itself. If Americans would turn to Christ, America would be fine. Right? There'll be a, that's the truth. And so what do we need to do as Christians? Here's what we need to do. We need to share the gospel. It's the only hope for people. And so we need to first walk it, and then we talk it. We need to first live it, and then as God opens doors, we give it. And then as we give the gospel, then what happens is that God invades that person's heart, changes it, and then all of a sudden that person's on a different road. And when you get one, two, ten, twenty, thousands, ten thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people doing that, then, then you can have a whole nation that's changed. That's our prayer. Paul, the prosecutor, is now going to give his closing argument in verse 19. If you're looking at 19, say amen so I know you're there. All right, here we go. Closing arguments in the courtroom. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that how many mouths? Every mouth may be stopped. And how much of the world? All the world may become guilty before God. Someone says, no, 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 I, I can be good enough, really. Verse 20, therefore by the deeds of the law, how much flesh? No flesh will be justified or declared righteous in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And so once again, imagine you're in the courtroom of heaven. There's God, he's the judge. There's Paul, he's the prosecutor. And there we are, we're the defendants. Okay, does everybody have, if everybody has that imagery in your mind right now, just say amen so I know you're there. We're in that courtroom. God's the judge. Paul's the prosecutor. We're the defendant. And we're all standing, and all of our mouths are stopped. There's no more excuses. We have nothing to say because we're all guilty. And the sentence is rendered. The jury of heaven gives the sentence on us. 
and it's death. It's death, ladies and gentlemen. That's where this world is going, to death. Not just physical death, spiritual death, eternal separation from God. And right when you hear the words death, right, we're sweating bullets. All of a sudden then, the door opens to the courtroom. And somebody else walks in, and he's got wounds in his hands and in his feet. It's the judge's one and only son. He walks in. Everybody's listening. And listen, listen to what he says. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Aren't you grateful for Jesus? Aren't you grateful for Jesus? Do you know how God the judge can be just and still justify you and me? Follow me here. Please don't pack up. We're still sharing here. And please be praying, by the way. Check this out. Do you know how the righteous judge can remain holy and righteous and just and not condemn us? You know how he can do that? Because the wages of sin is what? It's death. Here's how he does it. In fact, I'll let Jesus explain. The one who comes in the courtroom with the wounds in his hand and his feet. He says this. Back in the eternal councils of the Trinity, before the foundation of the world, my Father and the Spirit and I, we talked, and we all made a decision that when we looked ahead and we saw all humanity in sin under our judgment, on their way to an eternity without us, we all made the decision, we love them, we want to save them, we want to restore them, we want to heal their brokenness. Jesus says the son didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. We all decided that in the fullness of time, Jesus would say, I would come, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, I would be born of a virgin, never created, my, I am eternal, I would come into the world through a virgin, I would become a man, 100% God, 100% man, I'm teaching you the biblical Jesus here, please listen, and I would live a life of absolute perfection never sinning one time in thought, word, or deed. And then I would willingly go to a cross. That's how I got these wounds. Because the Romans put the nails in my hands and my feet. They stuck the spear in my side. They rammed the crown of thorns on my head. They tore open my back with a the flagellum. They spit in my face. I, God, went through all of that because I love you. And I don't want to be apart from you forever. 
And right before I felt my spirit leaving, I cried out, paid in full. And so all of your sins, if you will come to me, all of your sins, past, present, future, I'll wash them all away with my blood. Will you come to me? I'm your only hope. One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com and click on Knowing Christ.